uh, your word and the things that you would intend for us to know. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, if you will, to Acts 13. <coughs> Acts 13. And um, we're going to uh, deal with um, uh, the second lesson on the issue of repentance and trying to come to the Scriptures to find out what is repentance and how is it related to salvation. Uh, there are multiple uses of the word repentance in Scripture. There are sometimes that it is dealing with non-salvation issues, just uh, that somebody made a decision and they say, I'm not going to repent of this decision. What they mean by that is simply, I'm not going to change my mind uh, on it. It is settled and it's done and it is, that's, that's all it is. It's going to stay that way. And uh, they're unrepentant to it. Last week we spent some time dealing with uh, some definition of some terms and kind of laying some foundational things about what repentance is. Uh, repentance is not an action. It is an attitude. It's a change of mind, a change of heart uh, on some issues. Uh, it, it has the idea of, in some cases and in some uh, contexts of Scripture, it gives the idea of having some sorrow or remorse uh, of our actions to have uh, uh, the, the heart being changed in our attitude towards what we've done. Uh, in the other sense, it's just simply a very generic type of use in the sense that it's just a change of mind, a change of, uh, of our uh, decision that we have made in going a different direction. We also dealt with uh, what are good works, and we spent some time on that in Matthew chapter number 5. It talks about the idea that, or gives the idea that um, good works would be the keeping of the law, uh, sin, of course, would be the violation of the law. So it would be uh, the opposite of good works. Um, and so, again, we would, um, we would look at some things like that. And then we took some time to spend a number of uh, verses and, and a lot of Scripture that we gave last week. I didn't give you all of them, uh, but there are many of them that very, very specifically speak to the fact that our salvation is not by our works. It's not by the keeping of the law. By the keeping of the law, the Bible says, shall no flesh be justified. And when we use the phrases, repent of our sin or from our sin, if we mean by that, that we have to forsake or do away with our sin, uh, it causes us then to say, well, that means we're saying you have to keep the law, because, again, sin is the violation of, a, of the law. So it's saying we can't violate the law, we now have to keep it. And now we're back to the keeping of the law for justification. That, that, that definition of repentance of sin or repentance from sin is not a biblical definition of it if what we mean by that is that we have to forsake it in order to be saved. We are now uh, flirting with, if not fully blown, into works salvation. That there is something I have to do in and of myself, without God doing a transforming work in me, before I can get saved and allow God to do a transforming work in me. Uh, so we have to be so careful of how we define this uh, and how we deal with this. In the world that we live in today, there is a lot of this going on. Um, there are people, on uh, good people, uh, well, well-intentioned people, very sincere people, on uh, two sides of the issue. Some saying faith alone, some saying faith, but for also forsake your sin. You have to forsake the sin or you can't be saved. Uh, the, the truth is, if we say forsake the sin, to, to forsake means to abandon completely, to 
uh, get away from it. And, and now also, not only are we uh, dealing with work salvation, but we're also now dealing with sinless perfection. Meaning, if I sin after I make a profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then I obviously did not forsake my sin, and therefore I must not be truly saved. So now I have to live perfect according to that, if that's, if that's my definition of it. So there are some problems with that in Scripture, and that understanding of that use of those phrases. If we understand what repentance is from a biblical definition and standpoint, uh, I don't have a problem with those phrases. Um, but we shouldn't have to go into a big dialogue with somebody uh, to try to explain what repentance is if we use either repent of or repent from your sin. We shouldn't have to go into some big explanation of what that means. Um, and so I don't know that they're wise phrases to use. I don't know that that's the best phraseology to be used in Christian circles when it comes to talking to someone uh, about salvation. And there are certainly some other, other things that are, are very much easily seen uh, in Scripture that I think will be a help to you. So I spent some time last week basically dealing with what repentance was not and um, how, how that, that it is not an issue of keeping the law or forsaking the sin. But there is a change of heart, a change of mind on some issues, and we want to know what those things are. So uh, rather than get my opinion on what it is, let's go to Scripture and let's let the Bible tell us. And so we're going to start tonight in Acts chapter number 13, and uh, we're going to look at a number of Scriptures, quite a few Scriptures tonight, uh, Lord willing. And I, I know for a fact we're not going to get done uh, to this evening, so we'll have at least one more Wednesday night. And uh, hopefully finish next Wednesday. But if, if we need one more, I'm not gonna. I don't want to rush so quickly through the information that we don't get it, uh, because it's a very very important issue. Being right on this area, especially of doctrine, is of vital vital importance. If we're teaching a works salvation and someone follows our teaching, then they have not truly been saved. And eternity for someone hangs in the balance of whether we're right on this doctrine or we're wrong on it. So vitally, vitally important that we take time to spend whatever it takes from Scripture to understand it and to know what it means. So let's look at Acts chapter 13. We're going to begin reading in verse number 13. We're going to read down, oh, probably 11 or 12 different verses here. Acts chapter 13 and verse number 13. Now, when Paul and his company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But they, uh, when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Poseidon and went <clears throat> unto the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the, the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent unto them, saying, Ye men and brethren, if ye have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and beckoned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and ye that fear God, give audience. So I want you to notice who it is that he is addressing here. Not necessarily saved people. In fact, most likely not saved if you look at the message that he brings to them. Look what it says here in verse 16. It says, Then Paul stood up, beckoning with his hand, and said, Ye men of Israel. So first of all, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Jews, right? He's in the synagogue. That's usually where the Jews would be. But he also throws this in there, and ye that fear God. 
Because even then, there were a handful of proselytes and, and Gentiles that had come into the Jewish faith. Uh, and there always has been some that have come into the Jewish faith, all the way back to the time of Moses, um, where there was Rahab uh, that came into the Israelite people and took up the Jewish faith and some others that came along the way. And so he, he addresses all of them that there are there at the synagogue. Now, understand this, that if they're in the synagogue and they're not saved yet, more than likely their belief is that they are to follow what? The law. All right? The keeping of the law. So this is the group that he's speaking to. It's very important in context for us to know who he's talking to. And the, God, uh, the Bible says, "...the God of, the, of this people of Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with a high arm brought he them out of it. And about the time of forty years suffered uh, he their manners in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he divided their land to them by lot. And after that he gave unto them judges about the space of four hundred and fifty years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward they desired a king, and God gave unto them Saul, the son of Sees, or Sis, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, by the space of forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king, to whom also he gave the testimony. Now, the New Testament word of testimony has the idea and, the, and is used oftentimes interchangeably and synonymously uh, with the word covenant. They are one and the same. They are a promise that God makes. Uh, we find that in, uh, in Hebrews chapter number 7, 8. You'll see where God uses the word both test, uh, the testimony or the testament uh, and the covenant together uh, in interchangeably so uh, regarding the promise that he gave. So he also gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. Of this man's seed, notice this, hath God according to his promise. So wait a minute. He's making a promise to David, but he's making the promise according to his promise. Well, what promise was he speaking of there? The promise that he made to who? Anybody remember? To Abraham. That out of his seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, not all of his seed, because obviously Ishmael and, and that group was not of the promise, but out of his seed and the promise that God made to Abraham, we spoke of the seed being out of his seed blessing all of the nations, that he was speaking there of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so understand that God makes a promise here to David that is based on the promise he had already made to Abraham. And while he doesn't say to Abraham, he says that it's according to his promise. Raised unto Israel, and I want you to notice this phrase, raised unto Israel what? A Savior. And then he goes on to express who that Savior was. Very important here. Raised unto Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now, Paul makes a bold statement in the synagogue of Jews and those that are believe, or that, that follow after the Jews and are, are men of faith, men of, that fear God. And he says, God gave a promise to David that he was going to give a Savior unto Israel. And the Savior is Jesus. Very important that you understand what, not only who he's speaking to, but what is it that Paul is teaching them. He's teaching them that God's promise of a Savior was fulfilled 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's teaching in the synagogue. Now, Paul is good at this. He uses an awful lot of words to teach that point. But he does so because it builds a foundation. Now, as we get to verse 25, the Bible says, And John fulfilled his course. He said, Whom think ye that I am? Speaking here of John the Baptist, not John uh, the Apostle. John fulfilled his course. He said, Whom think ye that I am? And I am not he. John, John the Baptist said, I am not he. But behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. So when John came preaching a gospel of or, uh, a, um, uh, 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 repentance, baptism by repentance, <clears throat> I want you to understand what it was he was saying. He was saying, there's a Savior coming. It's not me. But there's one coming after me. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. He came to preach to who? Who did John go to? Did he go to the Gentiles? No. Because Jesus first came to the household of Israel, didn't he? So John the Baptist is preaching to Jews. And his message is, the Savior, you know, the one that was promised to Abraham, the one that again was promised to David based on that promise, he's coming, he's Jesus, and then he's baptizing one day at the Jordan River, and here comes Jesus, and he points to him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He's teaching Israel... There's the promise. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So understand this. In verse 24, Paul is, is, is or the right, uh, I'm sorry, Luke is uh, speaking here. He says, When John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to who? All the people of Israel. He's preaching repentance to the Jews. Repentance of what? What happened when the Lord Jesus Christ came on the scene? Did the Jews say, praise the Lord, our Savior is here? They embraced Him. They said, boy, that's it, isn't it? What did they do? They rejected Him. John said, you need to repent of it. He's not telling them to repent of their sin. He's telling them to repent of their unbelief. He's telling them to repent of their rejecting Christ. By the way, When God speaks to you and I as Gentiles of repentance, He's speaking the same thing. Because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no appetite for the things of the Lord. He's teaching us to repent of our unbelief and to turn toward God. We're actually going to see that in Scripture here in just a little bit. uh, That this is the, the repentance that is spoken of here. So notice what he says here in verse number 25. And John fulfilled his course... He said, Whom think ye that I am? I am not he, but behold, there cometh one after me, whose shoes of his feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, and whoso among you feareth God, to you is the word of this, what? Salvation sent. In order for the Jews to get saved, they had to repent of their rejection of Christ and put their faith in Him instead. It was that simple. It was turning from a rejection and turning to, if you will, an embracing or a trusting or a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When it speaks of the baptism of repentance in that day and age, when a person changed, and and understand the polytheism that went on in that day, there were hundreds and hundreds of uh, idols and religious beliefs in the Jewish or in the Greek culture. Not in the Jewish culture, hopefully, although sometimes that was the case too. But especially in the Greek culture of the day. 
And it was common practice when a person would change from believing in one God to believing in another God that they would go through a process called baptism. It wasn't just for Christians. And they would do this as an outward testimony to everybody that saw it that I'm no longer following this one. I am now following this one. That's what baptism was. By the way, that's today what baptism is. I'm crucified in the flesh. I'm now rising to walk in newness of life. I'm forsaking the one. I'm turning from belief in this mindset and turning after the things of the Lord and embracing Him. And so we find that it is a change of heart or a change of mind regarding our disbelief and or our rejection of, because sometimes even though we may believe, we reject the Lord Jesus Christ before we're saved. This is what the gospel of repentance is about, the the baptism of repentance that John dealt with in Acts chapter number 13. Now, if you will, let's turn over to uh, the book of Romans chapter number 1. Romans chapter number 1. And Paul writes about this also. And so let's take a look at what his idea of repentance is. Romans chapter number 1. And let's look in verse number 15. Romans chapter 1, verse number 15. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the what is he preaching here? The gospel, all right? He's going to preach the gospel. This is what he's going to be discussing. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. Salvation comes through faith to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by. Are we getting the sense of what salvation comes by here? It comes by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and righteous and unrighteousness of men. Now, notice what he considers to be the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who hold the truth in unrighteousness. In other words, they know what the truth is; they just rejected it. Look what he says here, and he goes on to to explain it further in verse 19. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without what? Excuse. Now here it is. Because that when they knew God, they what? Glorified Him not as God, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was what? Darkened. So, so what was their sin? What was their, their thing that was going to condemn them here? It was the rejection of God. It was a rejection of His truth. And Paul calls this, I'm getting ready to teach you the gospel message, and what is known here is that the truth has been made plain. He said it was clearly seen. Those are the words he used. But these people who knew God, when they knew Him as God, they glorified Him not as God. He goes on to say in verse number 22, "...professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." 
and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, into birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So they rejected God and followed after idols. Their great sin was the rejection of God. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts. Now, the result of rejecting God is going to cause them to live in the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie, and worshiped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another, men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error, which was meat. In other words, these folks that were in this uh, homosexual lifestyle, they were reaping what they were sowing, and God said, and that punishment is suitable for that, for that offense. And even as they did not like to retain God, look at verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It doesn't say they didn't know Him. It says they didn't like to retain Him in their knowledge. By the way, if you ever meet somebody that says, I don't believe in God, every time I've ever talked to one, it's not that they don't believe in Him, it's that they don't like to believe in Him. Because if they have to believe in Him, then they have to believe there's a moral absolute. They can no longer live the way they want to live without suffering the consequences of that. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are convenient are not convenient. So this whole section here is dealing with people doing what? Rejecting the truth of God. They know it. This entirety of chapter 1 is dealing here primarily with, first of all, the reason man found themselves in the condition they were in that needed to be saved was because they had rejected God. Being filled with all unrighteousness, verse 29, and fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, fully at the envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Kind of sounds like the society we live in today, doesn't it? Sad to say. Without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. So not only have they rejected God, but they take pleasure in their rejection of God. And by the way, that's where you and I were before we got saved. We were content in that life, weren't we, for a long time? Until the Holy Ghost brought conviction to our hearts about the issue, we were content. In fact, we, to use the Bible terminology, would say it this way, we took pleasure in it. And in fact, we took pleasure in those that did it too. Those were our companions. Those were our friends. Therefore, Paul just made a big explanation of, again, what's he preaching here? He's preaching the, the gospel. But before he can share what saves us, he has to share what the problem is. Now notice what he says here. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for in wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest the same things. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. 
And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and dost the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? Not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to, what's the next word here? Repentance. Repentance of what? Repentance of unbelief. That's what he dealt with in chapter 1. And while our unbelief will lead to sinful things, the repentance that needs to be done for us to get saved is rejecting our unbelief and putting our faith in or our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. He speaks very clearly of this in verse 4. Despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering. You know that the reason God did not strike us dead the moment we had reason to understand between right and wrong and we willingly and willfully continued in sin before we were saved, the only reason God spared our life until the moment we trusted Him as our Savior was because of His goodness, His forbearance, and His long-suffering. And we can submit all three of those things under one category of His mercy. And that's what he speaks of here in verse number 4. He says, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Let's go to John chapter number 3 for a moment. John chapter number 3. John chapter number 3, let's look in, we're going to start in verse number 16. <clears throat> For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. So, this is God's purpose. Now, I want you to notice very carefully verse number 18. He that, what's the next word here? Believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not what? Hmm, that's an interesting thing. What is it that condemns us? You can say, well, it's our sin. Okay. But our sin is the result of something, is the result of an unbelief in him. God tells us right here in John chapter number 3, the Lord Jesus Christ specifically says this, that he that believeth not is condemned already, and he's condemned for this reason, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When we say you need to repent for the remission of sins, what are we talking about? Are we saying I've got to forsake all of my sin? No, we can't do that. Because this side of heaven, I'm going to sin again. I don't want to. It's not my desire to. It's just a fact of life that we are going to still sin. If I have to forsake my sin to get saved, I cannot get saved. Because I will sin again. And that means I did not forsake it. But I can repent of my sin of unbelief. I can go from a place where I had no desire for the things of the Lord... My sin didn't bother me. I didn't have a conscience about it. 
And one day, the Holy Spirit began to move in my heart and show me some things from Scripture that I needed to trust Christ as my Savior as a payment and as a solution for the sin debt that I could not pay. Repentance is not an issue of forsaking sin. If we say it that way, I would say it's the, it's, it's the forsaking of only one, and that is the sin of unbelief. To turn from our unbelief and turn to a trust and a faith in Him. Over and over in Scripture, I've, we're going to end here because it's already after 8 o'clock. I have that many verses yet to go through that will all agree with what I've just stated here tonight. Every single one of them. I've not only got that page, I've got another one. And I'm here, I'm here tonight to tell you, and Lord willing, next week we're going to go through probably most of these. I don't know that I'll go through all of them because it will get a little bit repetitive after a while. I think by the time we're done, folks, there will be no, there will be no question. And it will be so easily seen. What does the Bible mean when it says that we need to repent? I have often said it this way, that faith and repentance cannot be separated. When I turn to God by faith, I have turned from my unbelief. When the act of faith happens, the act of repentance also happens. By the way, you could say it the other way if you want to, and it will do the same thing. When I turn from my unbelief, that means I have to turn toward believing. And that means that the moment of repentance, I've also had faith. I'm very clear on this. And folks, it is vitally important that we're solid on this from Scripture. I fear that many, many times from misunderstanding this doctrine, folks have been led to a works-based belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, if that's the case, then those that have, have done such, and I'm not, I'm not happy to say this, it gives me no joy to say this, but if that has been what we've done to be saved, we are not saved. We have trusted our works. Now, Lord willing, next week we'll finish this portion of it. More than likely, I will take one more Wednesday night to talk about the fact that once we are saved, should we continue in our sin? <laughs> to quote Paul from Romans 6, God forbid. God forbid. Should there be a forsaking of our sin? Absolutely. Once we're saved, but it's not required for salvation. If I were to say that a forsaking of any sin at all had to take place, and we wanted to use that phraseology, I would say that it would only be for one sin, and that is the sin of unbelief. To turn from unbelieving to putting our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll find, and, and by the way, those sheets of paper uh, that I showed you a moment ago have every single verse in the New Testament that uses the word repent or repentance. Every single one of them. I even went through and looked up many of them in the Old Testament and found that most all of them dealt specifically with the nation of Israel over issues. So most of them were not applicable to salvation. The ones in the New Testament, there's a few like that, but most of them will deal with salvation to some extent or another. And without exception, you'll find that in every case, it's not dealing with repentance of the sense of forsaking our sin. 
but is always dealing with the repentance of unbelief and turning to Christ with a trust in Him and a faith in Him. Don't miss next week. We'll go through the verses and I'll show you so you know it's not just my thought or my opinion. And we will get there, okay? Hang in there. It's getting interesting, all right? Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed. Father, we are so, so thankful for Your Word. How lost we would be without it. How difficult some things would be. Our understanding.